Welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow. And um, Alex, we have a really good guest who. Yeah, like somebody I've known since I'm, I think, 13 or 14 years old. And, and Bridget, you knew, but maybe didn't know. We, we all walk the same hallways of the Trinity School. <laughs> We've had so many Trinity people on this show. We've had Sophie well, B. Hawkins. It speaks to both the, the amazing alumni that come out of that institution and the laziness of you and me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Rex Miller is our guest today. And- Rex Miller, who, who uh, in his life, an elite tennis player, part of the tennis juggernaut that was the Trinity tennis uh, program in the late 70s, early 80s. Do you know 80s. that I taught tennis there? I did not know that, but Trinity had two <laughs> courts on the roof and then one rolled out on the in the gym floor. And then yeah. that was the, the McEnroe era, if you will. And But then Rex picked up a camera and uh, has never put it down and has been a photographer. He's been a cinematographer uh, and has been a documentarian and has really cast this amazing shadow of a brilliant work, brilliant, a beautiful looking work, but also on Althea Gibson and uh, right. currently finishing a film on Arthur Ashe. So uh, two people, two, you know, that are subject matter that uh, every American should um, appreciate and study. Uh, he's so also people, people of color and tennis. Seemed well. I mean, when we talked to him, yeah, him, yeah, and and really just individuals that that were elite geniuses at what yes. what they did in a world that had a lot of barriers and stuff uh, put up, you know, that they had to kind of circumnavigate. But Rex is also he's just a cool guy, and and, and really one of the uh, people that one of the few people I've actually stayed in touch with since I left Trinity. That I uh, well, I'm surprised our paths haven't crossed since you and I have stayed in touch, and you know syllogistically speaking. Uh, yeah, I know. And, and I think maybe that speaks to that fact that Rex uh, w- went out in the world and, and uh, carved his own path and, and didn't stay in this little section of the world. Although he has quite a history out on the East End. And that's the other thing. We are Sundays we are, on the East End. Right. And I know Rex uh, taught tennis at the East Hampton Tennis Club uh, and maybe a couple other places out here. And we'll talk to him about yeah. what brought him out here, his relationship to this part of the world. And then uh, also how he picked up a camera and how he started his career uh, behind the lens. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear all about that. So we're going to be taking a little teeny quick break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And you're listening to us on WLIW 88.3 FM, Long Island's only NPR station. And we'll be right back after this. We're back, Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And uh, I don't want to waste another minute here on 88.3 WLIW-FM. Let's get right to our guest. Yeah, hey, Rex. Thanks for coming on, man. Hello, Sock. Hello, Bridget. Great to be here. Yeah. (laughs) Where where are we finding you? Uh, At the office in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Okay. And how how long have you been down in downtown Durham? 
well, I like to say I escaped New York in early '04. It was uh, 12 degrees and seven inches of snow on the ground, and I just had had enough. Did did everything I think I could do in New York, and headed south, and literally stopped off in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it was uh, 65 degrees the next day, and I just stayed. <laughs> <laughs> really? Is that you decided where you were going to live purely on the weather? Uh, well, I decided to stay for a few days. I had a little uh, editing project to do on my laptop, and uh, I got a, a room on Carolina Beach for $22 a night. And uh, after three or four days, I, I just started looking at places to live. And then I connected with tennis people who I knew from juniors, and one thing led to the next. And I made uh, a little home in Wilmington and then moved up a few years later to Durham, which is a little more industrious. I know. I love, I love Durham. I absolutely love all those big, like tobacco. I don't know what they are. They're like you love mill. Big tobacco? No, I don't, love, I don't love big anything. You're I take it back. News here. I take it back. No, but those big like factory buildings that have those huge towers. And yeah. I just love Durham. I've always thought that was just such a cool, such a cool city. And it's one of the places I would definitely consider, you know, as the, if when I have to change my name and, and take a powder, that's where I'll be. So much I've always wanted to ask you as, as a friend and a buddy. First of all, like tennis has been part of your life since I've known you. Who introduced you to tennis and, and what was the attraction of tennis for you? What is the attraction? Like, what is it about it that just fulfills you? Well, if I hadn't gotten into tennis, I would have been an abandoned child because my parents were both tennis fanatics. My dad was a, a weekend tennis coach and had worked in like the, the, the tennis organization of the day. Uh, my mom played against Althea Gibson in 1958, and I never stopped hearing about that. She lost 6-0-6-1, but it was her big, proud day. So I remember being in the crib next to the tennis court, and then you can just take it from there. Wasn't right. that reminds me of like Andre Agassi's story about like, didn't his dad hang a tennis ball above his crib and like make him smack at it? some crazy story like right, that. But also, yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about Althea because you, you did a, a, a really brilliant documentary where she was the subject matter that uh, then became, I think, if I remember correctly, part of the American Masters on PBS. So you grow up with tennis. But you're in New York City where we have that nasty astroturf at Trinity. <laughs> yeah, I still have a scab. I was showing it to my 12-year-old daughter when she just got one on her first day of skateboarding. I was like, this is from age, you know, fourth grade. So yeah, live with it. I have one too, and I, it's my only sports-related injury, by the way. Yeah, it's <laughs> an honor. Yeah. From the AstroTurf. Yeah, the next thing is, let's talk about the East End. So, like, what brought you out to the East End of Long Island, and what, what were some of the things that you, you did that maybe uh, changed your direction? Well, it's funny. Tennis brought me out to the East End. You know, I grew up playing uh, tournaments in, in, in and around New York City. Long Island was a, a tennis mecca in the late 70s um, with McEnroe and Gerolitis and the U.S. Open right there. And uh, I played at Port Washington Tennis Academy. And then John came to Trinity when he was in ninth grade and I was in sixth grade. And nobody in the whole school knew about his tennis, except maybe very vaguely, because tennis was kind of not respected at that point, really, you know, in, as a high school endeavor. But to me, he was already kind of a legend because I was playing at Port Washington Tennis Academy. And when he was 12, 13, 14, he was whooping up on 18-year-olds and he just stood out. So when he came to Trinity, 
Uh, I remember going to his very first high school match. He was in ninth grade and he played Kerry Leeds, who also became a pro player, top 50 in the world, who went to collegiate. What's so funny is like, John, John was five years ahead of me, right? Or, or four years ahead. Like, so I never really knew John, but right. I knew Mark really well. And, and Mark Patrick. was in, but Mark was in your class. Mark was also, you know, and is a, 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 I think a, a very talented tennis player. I always associated you with Mark more than John. Yeah, for sure. Cause Mark came in 11th grade and he and I already knew each other from the Port Washington Tennis Academy. So when he came in 11th grade, I was the only person he knew. And we became fast friends, best friends, and doubles partners, you know, on occasion in high school tennis. And, you know, we, uh, because of Mark and, and tangentially through knowing John, we kind of had a nice front row seat uh, for his, you know, bursting on the scene. And I remember really well in ninth grade, he was a senior and number one on the team. But we had all these other great players, Alex Siever, Tori Kayam, Howard Irby, Robin Kayam, Jay Horowitz, all these ranked players. So John only played in three matches as he was playing more and more on the national and starting to play international level as a senior in high school. And John played with us. We played the Harvard JV team, the Yale JV team, and then the Lawrenceville school, which all had these very strong players. Um, my favorite high school tennis memory is playing number six as a ninth grader. And John, of course, was playing number one. But John was playing this guy from Lawrenceville who would become top 50 in the world. And they were basically having a pro match two courts away from me. And I was just <laughs> amazing. And you were like, oh, my God. Right. You we were just watching right. it. So you're into tennis. How did that relate to you coming out to the East End? So after uh, freshman year of college, I was slaving away in a, in a construction job in, in Manhattan for the summer and went out to a tennis club in Queens. And this guy said, you don't need to be doing that. I have a job for you for next summer. And he introduced me to the head of the East Hampton Tennis Club, uh, this gentleman, Avrin Brog. Some of you might know and Andy Brog and Spencer Brog. These guys, they also played tennis. Yeah, I actually knew them from my squash days. Yeah, great squash players, and they're, they were in Amagansett. So I wound up coming down uh, from my college, Polgate, uh, in the spring next year and having an interview with Avrin Brog in his office because he couldn't get away to go to a tennis court. And he was so busy that I gave him a tennis lesson for 10 minutes in his office, and he's like, okay, you're hired. And so I spent the next two summers out at the East Hampton Tennis Club uh, six days a week, basically eight hours a day, giving tennis lessons. And at the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never given a te tennis lesson, but kind of made it up. And, you know, 400 hours later, I kind of knew what I was doing. So I spent two summers, like age 19, 20, out in East Hampton, living lavishly in, in a beautiful home on the Atlantic over in East Hampton by the, uh, what's that beautiful golf club? Maidstone. Maidstone. That was our backyard. Right. That's right. amazing. And then uh, you, you had mentioned before we actually came on the air that you also then uh, started working for Hamptons Magazine. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. You asked me how I started taking pictures. Uh, my first summer in East Hampton, uh, staying in this beautiful house. And I mean, the, you know, the light out in the Hamptons at sunrise and sunset and the ocean and the beautiful hedges everywhere. Um, I just got inspired to go buy a camera and I needed to like take some pictures of the sunsets through the bedroom window just to show people. 
and show people the pool and the ocean and the guest house and all the, you know, the life out there. And uh, I actually just bought a camera that came in the mail and it was like a camera package. And I just started taking pictures. And when I got up to college, one thing led to the next. And I started working for the school newspaper. And then after school, uh, I don't even remember who it was, but somebody introduced me to the nice folks at Hamptons Magazine. It's kind of a long story. I had a portfolio by then because I had spent eight months backpacking around the Middle East and Africa. And I didn't have uh, maybe a portfolio geared towards Hamptons Magazine. But the guy that ran it, uh, some of you folks, your audience, I don't know, there are a lot of wild animals out here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was more into the Nat Geo thing in Africa, you know, and, yeah. uh, and on that trip, I actually spent a month in South Africa, and that was in 85 during the height, the height of uh, the state, wow. of, uh, state of emergency. You had a whole like Peter Beard part of your journey. Yeah, bit. that's amazing. Oh, I have a Peter Beard story for you. I'm a big fan. Um, but anyway, uh, I wound up getting this job at Hamptons Magazine, hired by Grover Gatewood, who ran the magazine for years and years. And I uh, had a great experience out there. Uh, six days a week, I would do three, four photo shoots a day. And the magazine is uh, was then, I haven't seen it in a while, a lot known for its like paparazzi party shots. And we me and the other photographer, Andrew Brusso, we mostly didn't have to do that kind of stuff, although sometimes we'd go shoot a party, which was kind of fun. But uh, they modeled themselves after like New York Magazine or a little bit Village Voice and that they were just doing interesting articles on all the movers and shakers and interesting people out in the East End. And um, I got to shoot Tom Wolf. It was actually the first article he did when Bonfire of the Vanity Vanities was coming out because one of the reporters had a connection to him. And I shot um, a lot of music. Uh, I ha still have a picture of the Ramones that Andrew, oh, wow. Andrew Brusso. Oh, you know uh, they played the, the old Bay Street Theater back in yeah. the day. Yeah. We actually had our guest was Dr. Donna Gaines, who wrote a book, Why the Ramones Matter. Oh, wow. um, so you're bringing us back to that. But, you know, it sounds like it's a good place for us to take a little bit of a break. I, when we come back, um, I want to hear your Peter Beard story before we go on to talking about your film experience and how you blended your love of tennis with your love of film. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. We're speaking with documentarian, filmmaker, tennis person. And citizen of the world, uh, Rex Miller. <laughs> Rex Miller and Trinity Escapee. Uh, <laughs> you're listening to us here on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. We'll be right back after this. Hey! Back Sundays on the East End here on WLIW 88.3 on your dial number one in your heart. <laughs> and we're speaking with Rex Miller about tennis, filmmaking, and travel. And, um, and Peter Beard. And Before we move on to, yeah. to your, your work, uh, you know, your, your cinematography oh, and, Peter your, just and your directing. Peter just passed in a, in a you know, not wonderful way, wandering off and, and found near his home. This is true, although I will say, while, while his transferring back into the universe might not have been wonderful, 
that's a very poetic way for Peter Beard to kind of Absolutely. check out of his consciousness. To be surrounded by nature in the middle of nature. Mm-hmm. So anyway, tell us your, your, your quick Peter Beard story before we go on. Okay. Well, I, I would, first of all, agree with Alec that it, it's, uh, it's poetic. Um, and uh, anyway, so I had spent some time photographing in Africa, and that's kind of how I became acquainted with his work. And it was always kind of controversial. I mean, it was very, very popular, but he was accused of this or that, being elitist or whatever. Um, but I was a fan of his work because I found it so real, like him in Africa. And I, and I thought it was really interesting work because of his personal take on things. Those diaries were like brilliant. But anyway, uh, being that he was a, an East End resident, he uh, mingled with our magazine, Hampton's Magazine, when I was there. And uh, I didn't really meet him, but my uh, photographer colleague, Andrew Brusso, spent a little time with him. And so they asked Peter to do a shoot for the magazine for the cover. And some amazing supermodel came out to his house. And, you know, it's kind of cliche to shoot a model on the rocks with the the water splashing behind her. But we wound up developing his film and looking at like the 10, 15 rolls that he shot. And I just remember seeing this one shot where the waves absolutely perfectly surrounded this woman, where it was just a moment of art, where these different elements that somebody else shooting might have been blase, blase. But he just nailed this moment right in front of us and we witnessed it in the dark room so i've always looked at his work uh with respect and you know just give a shout out to him and all his friends and family yeah that's awesome we we fell out of touch for for a little bit of time and the first time that i think we came back into each other's consciousness was around that book you did about in the Mississippi Delta. Oh yeah, blues. that's so, so fascinating. How, let's talk about that a little bit and and uh you're shooting uh your photographer and you're shooting like old blues, old blues people that were kind of what, somewhat esoteric. Yeah, what that- led you to that, Rick? So shooting in the Hamptons all summer, I mean, I must have done 300 shoots and, and quite a few of them were music related. And um, my colleague, Andrew, at the time really pushed that. We did a lot of shoots together um, at the clubs out there in the Hamptons. And then when I came back to New York after that summer, you know, I started uh, pitching myself to magazines and getting work uh, from magazines. And I kind of generated this assignment with Seven Days Magazine. Uh, y'all remember that one? And uh, I was photographing uh, blues musicians in New York, and I shot Coco Taylor, Albert Collins, and BB King. And while I was photographing BB King in a studio in a, in a portrait setting, you know, typical banter was like, "Where are you from, Mr. King?" You know, I didn't know anything about him except that he was the king of the blues. And he's like, man, I'm the king of the blues. I'm from Mississippi. Where do you think I'm from? And as we were talking more and more, I I had just come back from Africa and we were talking about that. And he literally said, you know, if you want to make some good pictures, you should go down to the Mississippi Delta. You're going to find it fascinating. And the next day, his colleague who was in the room called me and and made an introduction for me to this gentleman down in Atlanta, Worth Long who was an academic, but also had been very active in the civil rights movement. He's actually in the Selma, Alabama Voting Rights Hall of Fame. He, he's an African-American man, and he literally would go around in the 60s onto plantations in the Mississippi Delta registering African-Americans to vote. And he got shot at, he got shot at, he got put in jail. And so I called him up. And after like a half hour conversation, 
he said, well, I was supposed to go to Mississippi tomorrow, but my car broke down. So I was like, I got a car. <laughs> and, you know, in your 20s, you know, you do this. You leave the next day and drive to Atlanta. And then I spent eight days with Worth. And he just kind of opened up the door for me. He did a lot of work with Smithsonian um, around uh, blues history. And some of y'all out there might know who Alan Lomax is. He's this very, very famous white folklorist and who documented indigenous music all over the world. But in Mississippi, Worth Long was his fixer, showing him where to find these uh, unknown blues musicians and to lead him to the true story of where the blues came from, which was basically um, the cotton fields and all that. And so you had a, a wonderful cachet and introduction. Uh, I, I, you know, I read, I, I read your book, I saw the photos, and then you also made a, a, a back in the day, a CD, and I heard some of the interviews, and uh, they're incredibly moving. I mean, like one of the things I've always loved about your work, Rex, is you have the ability to re have people reveal themselves in a very uh, natural way, where it doesn't feel like they're being interviewed, but I feel like I'm in the room. And, and so you have this and, and, and you turn it into a book, right? Yeah, um, 33 trips later, uh, I, always, I, I made 33 trips to Mississippi and I drove 32 times from New York. So that became like a very escapist experience for me to leave New York where you're just trying to survive as a, as a freelance artist. And then I'd go spend a month down in Mississippi and just photograph for the for the art of it and the experience of it. I always said it was my biggest education, much more than Trinity or Colgate. Um, and I just liked to listen to these guys. They were so interesting to me. I know that you came from a somewhat blue collar background, but you also came, you know, spent time in the Hamptons. And, you know, let's face it, you went to Trinity, which is like one of the best schools, you know, high schools in the world and all of that. I know that you're biracial, correct? Or multi-ethnic? You revel in your own multi-ethnicity. <laughs> yeah. So my, my mom was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, she's Portuguese, uh, African, Jewish, and Indian. And then my dad's just vanilla from upstate New York, poor farmers. <laughs> um, and we grew up in Queens. Yeah. When you went down to the Mississippi Delta, how much did you feel at home and how much did you feel like an outsider? In terms of like, did you feel like you were grasping onto a part of your of your ethnicity or did you feel like, oh, my God? I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking of how I would feel, which is. Well, great question. You know, I, I think for me, those issues came up a little later. At first, I was just interested in going to a place I had never been to. And when Worth right. and I drove from Atlanta to Mississippi, it was like in the middle of the night just because of schedule. And I had just seen like, I don't know, I don't think Mississippi burning had come out yet, but other things like that. So I was a bit scared and nervous and freaked out. But seeing Mississippi and black life through his eyes and his introductions just broke a lot of barriers for me. And I found that people would meet me, you know, where I was at, you know, and I was just there to learn and, and open my mind. And uh, what was more foreign for me as a New Yorker was just Southern culture, not just yeah. black culture, but Southern culture, it, it felt like being in a new country. But through the people I met, it became a place where I felt very at home. And I'm just always interested in hearing different people's stories, their experiences. So for me, it was just about listening most of the time. And then a few folks found out that my mother you know, had some color in her and they got a kick out of that. Um, 
But I didn't feel judged down there. Like white and black would just kind of meet me where I was at. The fact that I was interested was enough. It's funny you say that because I was in Atlanta before the pandemic. And, um, you know, I hadn't spent time in the South in a while. And I was there for almost a week. And just like really just being there made me see that, you know, I, I mean, and this is a white white girl's view, but that everyone seemed to get along a lot better than they do up north. And maybe it's just because we're like, as New Yorkers, we're edgy naturally. So we tend to like curse each other out or, or, or bristle, but everyone there was seemed like pretty, pretty laid back and, and very, um, I don't know, like getting along in a way that I didn't expect. And I, you know, I went to a lot of different places. I saw people, you know, co coexisting in a, in a different kind of a way than up here. That was my own personal experience. But I want to know how, like how you got to, we still have a lot to cover and we don't have a lot of time. I, I want to know about how this became a book for you. What made you think, I want to do a book on this? I mean, why that medium? Yeah, as a, as a photojournalist doing a long-term project, you know, that's kind of a dream and, and an aspiration. And you know, as a photographer, I was always looking at photo books and long-term photo essays. And I had the good fortune that some publishing companies were interested in it. And I worked with this one company for like a year publishing it, but I actually found the arrangement really exploitive of artists. And I, you know, I had to raise money for them to put their name on it and you know, on and on. So I wound up publishing it independently, which wasn't so hip at the time. It was derisively called vanity publishing. Um, but yeah, but the book got into Barnes and Noble and we had two in-store events in Barnes and Noble and, uh, you know, so it was successful for me and, and my mom was impressed. <laughs> so you're doing that and your photojournalist, but, but like when we reconnected Rex, like you were shooting, uh, you were cinematographing, you were yeah. documentarying, you were doing <laughs> things more with like moving pictures. Uh, yeah. So how did you make the jump from all the blues gone, your book to like the, the movie about the, I guess the first one was about the chef, right? <laughs> Oh, you're making me reflect here. So after I finished, yeah, I finished that's it, the point. <laughs> I finished the book and it came out in like '96. And uh, uh, the one thing I'll say about the book is like one of my heroes in photography was a guy is a guy named Sebastião Salgado, famous Brazilian photographer with the Magnum Agency, and I got to work with his book editor. So that was like a, a really fun, amazing privilege. And I, when that book came out, it also coincided with my parents being older and kind of ill. And basically, I just shifted away from magazine work, which was like a 24-7 thing, and decided okay. to that I wanted to make films. And I just kind of went into my own personal film school for the next few years, learning how to edit. And then making I stumbled into tennis, making my living coaching tennis in New York and Long Island. So tennis was supporting the filmmaking dream. And then eventually I made a first film that was from this Mississippi work. And then I left New York and then the film thing kind of came together when I landed in North Carolina. So the last like 15 years, I've been shooting other people's films and producing, directing my own. That's fantastic. Rex. We're going to take a little break again. And when we get back, we were going to talk about the, how the, how you were able to meld. Uh, and I want to do a deep dive into Althea. And also, yes. even though the movie's not out yet, uh, it, your, your current project that's been, uh, I know, a, a death march labor of love for you, the Arthur <laughs> Ashe talk that you're doing, which um, I think are so not just salient and very moving, the, the footage I've seen on Arthur, but also 
Althea, it's just like what what it's like when you dive in to be a documentarian and how you go on that, that journey. And in the middle to talk about loving, of course, which uh, is probably really well known. I mean, I, I've mentioned it to my kids or they, my kids have seen it. So right. you, um, you, you were the cinematographer, the cinematographer on that. Yeah. for that. But first, Alec, we have to take a break. Oh, right. You know what? Uh, we have to take a break. Uh. <laughs> You're listening to Sunday's Oh my God, I'll take us out. Sunday's on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alec Sokolow. And our guest filmmaker and documentarian and author and everything, Rex Miller. Guru. Rex Miller. And you're listening to us on 88.3 WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR station. We'll be right back after this. We're back Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow. And we want to get right back into talking to our guest, Rex Miller. Before we talk about Althea, it is the summertime. The U.S. Open, I think, is going to go off as if not scheduled, but there'll be some version of it. Tennis is very much alive on the East End of Long Island. It's alive sure is. In, in New York. It's alive all around the world. I actually have a question to somebody who's taught tennis. If there's one or two things that you could like just share that for anybody that's out there hitting a tennis ball, that you might give them a little advice, a little bit of your wisdom, uh, not so much changing their entire game, but will make the game more enjoyable for them. What would it be? Oh, uh, relax. That's a big one, you know. And then go read Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. Let him take over for you. All right, cool. Do you know who my tennis teacher was? I learned how to play tennis from Don Budge. Oh, wow. Legend. I know we also, we share Paul Anacone, who, who's a buddy of mine since I'm about nine or 10 years old and also is from the East End. And I think you had said that you guys actually uh, play doubles together. Oh yeah. He, he was so great in the juniors. He's a, a year younger than I am. And he grew up out there in the East End and we knew each other a little bit through tournaments and we found ourselves at the same tournament. Uh, I was 14, he was 13. And I got to the finals of the singles where he whooped my butt, but the, the big one of it was playing doubles with him and we won the tournament and then he pretty much left us and went to Florida and then became Paul Anacone, amazing player and just even better coach, coached Federer and um, Tim Henman and um, probably forgetting his other number one player. Pete Sampras. Sampras, thank you. Yeah. You mentioned that the advice is relaxed and I know that when I've talked to Paul uh, or with Paul about some of his coaching things, he focuses much less on the actual game and much more on your mindset. And, and so it's fascinating to hear you say the same thing, you know? Yeah. His big, his big thing is uh, remember who you are out there. Like, what are you, what are you, how do you win points? Yeah. So he's go, go look at his website. He's a brilliant coach. Yeah. So let's talk about how you started to meld your love of this sport and I mean, how you got to this kind of yeah, inter- well, intersection of opportunity and passion so, uh, with Althea. Althea, yeah. So your mom played Althea. So you grow up hearing about Althea. What what turned you on to her as a subject uh, for a documentary? Well, literally, I was um, emptying out a box um, uh, and, you know, going through old stuff. Uh, 
after relocating in North Carolina. And I came across this photo that I mentioned of my mom and Althea after their match. And my mom's like smiling. Althea looks kind of bored. She's just whooped up on this woman, Owen one. And uh, I just got intrigued and I Googled Althea and I read all this stuff. And, you know, one of the things that stood out was that this one article said once Althea started playing in the white tournaments, which she was excluded from until she was about 21 or so, uh, she never played another person of color in a white tournament. So my mom was an exception to that. And and I, I called up uh, one uh, guy that I knew, Art Carrington. He's a uh, African-American and black tennis historian. He played in the U.S. Open himself. And he actually shares a maiden name with my mom, my mom's maiden name. And he uh, talked to me at length about Althea because he grew up front row seat. You know, she was older, but he knew all about her. So by the end of that day, I was mm. kind of making this film. And uh, it took five years, but we finally finished the film. And, you know, uh, she had an amazing journey, just, you know, a short version. In 1927, she was born in the cotton fields of South Carolina to sharecropper parents. And 30 years later, she got the Wimbledon trophy from the Queen of England. So I always thought, how did that happen? Like, so, yeah, she had an amazing journey. How did she get into 10? I mean, she was also, she was the first a person of color to win the Grand Slam, right? She didn't win the, the Grand Slam is winning all four majors. She she won, I think, she won Wimbledon and Forest Hills, uh, which is now the U.S. Open. Then it was the Nationals. And she won the French Open. So she didn't uh, right, win right. the Australian right. Open. But she came north with like hundreds of thousands of other people of color. Uh, she came from South Carolina and landed in Harlem and grew up there and she got discovered as an athlete on the play streets of harlem as they were known the, the pal the police athletic league would run these little summer day camps and she apparently clearly stood out in all sports and uh she would play on these short courts called paddle courts with like a wooden paddle with a little net playing in the street and she just stood out so much that uh, a gentleman named buddy walker who ran that play street but was also a nightclub performer he was a saxophonist and he had connections at the cosmopolitan club which was kind of a middle class upper middle class black tennis club in harlem had four courts and there was a lot of doctors and professors and teachers that would play there so she was introduced to a new world by coming to the cosmopolitan club and she received coaching there and you know, pretty soon she was winning titles in the uh, ATA, the American Tennis Association, which was the parallel black tennis association that was started actually in 1916. And uh, eventually uh, she got the uh, eye of these two black doctors, one in Wilmington, North Carolina, and the other Dr. Johnson, Robert Johnson in Lynchburg, Virginia. And both of these gentlemen were doctors in small southern towns that took a liking to tennis and had built uh, tennis courts in their backyard. And so she lived at Dr. Eaton's house in Wilmington, North Carolina, for four years from age 18 to 22, where he put her in high school so she would finish her education. She had stopped going to school in uh, New York. And then in the summers, she would play and live at Dr. Johnson's house. He ran basically a free tennis academy 
for chosen kids from the community and from around the uh, country uh, to come and live at his house. So she got a lot of formal coaching from these doctors. Right. Dr. Fulton also, though, cross-sex with Arthur Ashe, which we'll talk about in, yeah. in, a, in a minute. Yeah, I want to get back to talking a little bit about your your journey. You're clearly passionate about Althea and her, her bio and how she got from, you know, sharecropping family to, to you know, getting a, a trophy from the Queen of England. But what about your journey as a filmmaker? Because you had already been a cinematographer, correct? Yeah. So I started shooting for other people, but I also made two films before Althea. One was about the Mississippi experience uh, at Parchman Penitentiary. That's a whole story. Um, and then uh, from Wil when I landed in Wilmington, I was offered the opportunity to go to Uganda as a cinematographer, filmmaker, to make a little documentary about this NGO that was doing some good work in Uganda. And while I was there, uh, totally out of the blue, there was a Davis Cup match in Uganda. So I went the next day to, uh, to the site, uh, Davis Cup being like the World Cup of tennis. And it's even played at these, you'd call it minor league level of smaller countries with less resources. But Uganda had a national team. And I went over the next day actually, you know, yearning and demanding to play with somebody, to hit with somebody. And uh, I kind of bluffed my way in uh, and I was given the opportunity to, to hit with this kid who was the number one player in Uganda. And then I watched his matches over the next couple of days. And he had a really fascinating story in that his family was victimized by the war in northern Uganda. When he was about four years old, uh, his village was attacked by rebels of the LRA, Joseph Kony's, you know, uh, band of marauders. And his, some of his family members were killed, and he was able to better his life through tennis. And so I wound up over the – I thought I was going to make a little short film about this kid, but it wound up being a feature-length documentary. So that sounds like that was the intersection, actually, of your love of tennis and filmmaking. That was where the passion began. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, the, the film is called A Uganda Tennis Story, and it's about this young man, Patrick Alobo, and his backstory. And then going forward, he was able to come from Uganda to the States and go to college. And he's still here. And uh, that was a whole journey of about a four-year project. Uh, so the Althea film, you know, you, you just have an idea and, you, you know, so what? Nobody else cares that you have this idea. <laughs> so You said it took you four years to complete Althea? Yeah, Althea, I say five years, because if you admit that it was longer than that, then you really look like an idiot. But um, yeah, about a, a five-year process uh, from when you're sitting there on your bed in your underwear saying, yes, I'm going to make a film. And uh, the world does not necessarily invite you to go do that. But uh, a lot of people helped get that film done. So you, you, make a, you begin making a movie about this young tennis player in Uganda and it's your first diving in to making a documentary. You go on to Althea. How do you find the funding for Althea? Well, uh, the funding for Althea came from some individuals that love tennis, uh, like hedge fund folks. Uh, I got to give a big shout out to Bill Ackman. He's a, a huge tennis player. And he just felt, uh, as did some other folks, uh, that it was a story worth getting out there. And so they funded the film. Okay, awesome. And, and th that, that's a movie that ends up getting picked up by PBS American Masters. 
And then how did you jump from that to Arthur? And, and again, the Arthur Ashe doc is not out yet, but um, and full disclosure, I, I am participating a little bit in the storytelling. But, but wait, but what you were talking about during the break, uh, Alec was talking, you say what you were talking about. I mean, you really chose to spotlight people of color in a sport. In, in a sport that's predominantly run by opaque, uh, pink-skinned <laughs> European white people in this country. The institutions are set up, the tournaments are set up, and uh, if you are Althea Gibson, if you are Arthur Ashe, and I would imagine even for you, Rex, or Yvonne Gulagan, uh, you're, you're generally walking into places if you want to compete at a high level where you may be the only person of color uh, in, the, in the draw, you may be the only person of color in the locker room. Was there something about looking at Althea and then even looking at Arthur that you, you really connected with on that? Or was this something that was just part of like their journeys that was just kind of more interesting? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more the latter. Um, with Althea's story, there was a connection to my mom, which was the window into taking a deeper look in Althea's story. And I think I was really attracted to her uh, status as an outsider, you know, very much so. And uh, as Jeannie Ash, Arthur's wife, pointed out uh, in the film, you know, she was such an outsider. And she likes to draw the the distinction of the much higher obstacles that Althea had to jump than Arthur did in a sense that she was 10, 15 years before Arthur. She broke the color barrier in tennis at the at the U.S. Nationals, now the U.S. Open, in 1950. Um, and as Jeannie likes to point out, first of all, she was a woman. Um, right. Arthur had all these different institutions behind him. He grew up in the church in Richmond, and he had that um, as a base. Then he went to UCLA, and he had UCLA standing behind him. Then he was in the U.S. Army as an officer and, and living and working at West Point. So, you know, the military supported him. And then he was on the Davis Cup team. So he had a lot of support. Althea was a, a single person, a woman, uh, and this is the 50s. So she really was a, an outsider and had all these obstacles. But what's important to know from that story is that she had these people who helped her, you know, white and black, um, you know, surmount some of these obstacles. I'm curious on a personal level, Rex, is your mother still with us? Did did she see your documentary? No, she never did. She certainly would have appreciated it because, like, she's not in the film. I didn't want to make Sherman's March, but there is a picture <laughs> up there. They know her through your journey. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I get to tell this story on, you know, um, wonderful, obscure, beautiful radio shows like like yours. But um, all kidding aside. Hey, now, obscure? What are you talking about? In the time we have left, there's one anecdote about Arthur that that is in featured in the documentary that I would love you to actually chat about, if you don't mind, Rex. And that is about the relationship with his brother and how his brother was also in the Army uh, during the Vietnam War. Because uh, I, I think that that's like one of the great stories that deserves to be highlighted. Yeah, so um, Arthur's brother, Johnny, was was four years younger, um, also was a good athlete. Arthur likes to say liked to say that Johnny was a better athlete. He played all the different sports. and But Arthur and Johnny had very different experiences in the military. Arthur, while at UCLA, decided it was a good idea to go to uh, ROTC because everybody was getting drafted and um, he wanted to go in a, as an officer and get extra money and all these different things. And he was very pragmatic. So for him, it was a pragmatic decision. But anyway, uh, Johnny went in as a Marine on the ground 
and I wound up doing two tours in the Vietnam jungle uh, in the 60s. And there's a wonderful short documentary that ESPN put out called uh, Arthur and Johnny, which highlights their connection. And I won't give it all away, but let's just say that Johnny made a huge sacrifice so that Arthur didn't have to go to Vietnam. He was able to stay in the States and uh, be a commissioned officer at West Point while Johnny was, was doing the heavy battling. But Johnny just felt that um, Arthur had uh, a destiny that needed to be reached. And so he uh, made a selfless wow. to prevent Arthur. Basically, he re-upped for a second tour and it had to do with the Saving Private Ryan edict that uh, his last surviving brother brothers couldn't be in military theater at the same time. So Johnny did another tour in Vietnam and uh, he survived. He spent 25 years in the military. Um, he's doing great. In that period, though, and which I think your film highlights, that gave Arthur the, the opportunity to win the U.S. Open, the first U.S. Open in 68, and yeah. really kind of changed his, his uh, journey as a, as a world citizen, as an activist, and ultimately as a humanitarian. Yeah, indeed. When, when Arthur won the US, first U.S. Open in 68, we all know what a tumultuous year it was. And and Arthur had connections to both Martin Luther King and even closer connection to Bobby Kennedy. They had met each other through Donald Dell, who worked for the Kennedys and was a big tennis person at the time and later became Arthur's agent and lawyer. Um, but winning the U.S. Open in that year was one of the few positive things that was happening on what you might call the civil rights front. Um, we had the riots uh, all over the country. So it was able to uh, give him a platform to slowly start to bring about change. And for a lot of people at the time, Arthur, you know, the expression is he wasn't black enough for a lot of people. And Arthur got called Uncle Tom all the time. But he hit that accusation head on and just said, you know, I'm not a shouter. Uh, I don't believe we should burn buildings down. The way to create change is by everybody coming to the table, enacting policy. Um, so I think his brand of activism, which one might call more Obama-esque than Stokely Carmichael, um, who was a uh, colleague and confidant of Arthur, um, but they just differed in their approach to activism. And Arthur's uh, winning the U.S. Open was able to really ignite his lifelong approach to activism. And then, of course, posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Rex, we're wrapping it up now. Um, I know. We're just scratching the surface. I too. know. We've got to come back on. We've got to continue. I, I want to hear, like, I want the audience to know what you're doing now. I, one of the things I love about you, Rex, and, and there's many things that inspire me, but one of the things I love about you is that you really are an artist. You really do follow a passion. Uh, I know that the creation of art is a passion play more than a logical play. There's a million reasons why things shouldn't happen, but the, the desire to make something happen trumps all of them. And everything in your life and everything in your journey uh, points to that. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, it's great to uh, revisit the old times there, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, I'm definitely going to make it up to the East End as soon as uh, lockdown ends. <laughs> and if people want to learn a little bit more about you and your projects, do you have a website? Yeah, rexpix.com, R-E-X-P-I-X. That's a great name, Rexpix. 
Uh, we've been speaking with Rex Miller, um, Trinity grad, <laughs> Colgate grad, tennis pro, tennis world pro, traveler, I mean, yeah, film and, documentarian, and, and storyteller, storyteller, and just a really, really nice human being. So uh, we need more nice human beings in this world. Thanks again, Sock. Do you wanna do you wanna take us out? Yeah, everybody. Thanks for listening. I uh, hope everybody's having a good uh, summer, a good week. Here's what I would say: the next week, if you can, pick a pick up a racket and, and uh, hit a ball. Don't hit a ball thinking that uh, where the ball is gonna land. Hit hit a ball thinking about the sheer joy of uh, revealing yourself by hitting that ball, if you will. So everybody, be well and stay well. And make a world.